Isaiah chapter 6, reading the entire chapter again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, God's holy and errant word endures forever. Well, our focus this morning is on verses 11 to 13 as we understand God's holiness purifying all things, both the faithless and the stump. And uh, those are the things that we will be dealing with. But we come back to this very point, uh, this thing that we need to grasp what it means for us to say that God, the Lord God Almighty, is holy, holy, holy. Now, this is the fourth time of setting this before you, and I hope more and more it is grabbing hold of in our thoughts what the holiness of God and the grandeur of it is for us, uh, for even the whole world. And I've been submitting to you each week that at least based on verse 3, God's holiness is, is a threefold nature. When we say that God is holy, we are saying first and foremost that He is completely and exclusively God. There is no other God. 
We do not worship along with Islam or along with uh, other uh, sects and cults or along with other religions, another God called by the same name. It is not God they worship. There is only one living and true God whose glory he does not share with any other, who is alone the eternally self-existing God who was and is and ever shall be and who is creator of all things in heaven and on earth. He is holy. He is alone God. And as that alone God set apart from all things creator, the one who alone is to be worshipped. That's foremost what it means to say God is holy. But secondly, to say God is holy is also to declare that he is a God of absolute truth and righteousness. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And and that is something that we are more confronted with on a social, societal manner. It establishes the truth of morality. What is right and wrong. What is good, what is bad. And, And it establishes a moral compass that we are all called in our humanity to follow. There is an absolute rightness. And for some to make that, that testimony, that, that uh, shall we say, secular uh, uh, truth out there, that, that uh, all truth is relative, all morality and righteousness is relative, is a lie. It is to deny the holiness of God. And and we are meeting that climate more and more in our day. And the last thing to acknowledge about the holiness of God is that he is alone the one who stands as judge over all the earth. How many times that truth is made known to us from the old to the very last book of the Bible we all must stand before the judgment seat of God. Why? Because He is the Holy One. And as the Holy One, He is the only one able to rightly judge all people and all things. And He is the judge of all the earth who shall do what is right. You put those three things together. That is what it means for us to tremble before the holiness of God. Because we are sinners. Because we are a people who have fallen short of that very glory of God that is over us. Whether you are Christian or you are not a believer in Christ. God's holiness stands. It is the majesty of his glory. And we have seen through this chapter thus far how God's holiness has exposed not only Isaiah's sinfulness, it has exposed Israel's sinfulness. 
You see that in verse 5, Isaiah, already called, already commissioned to be a prophet, already speaking the word of God to a wayward people. When he is confronted with the holiness of God, the first thing that he does is that he stands there before God, seeing himself as one who is now completely undone, unworthy of being in that presence, deserving of God's judgment. Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. God's holiness confronts our sinfulness. It exposes us as sinners. And we have also seen in verses 9 to 10 how God's holiness has also aggravated Israel's hard-heartedness. This is one of the things about this particular chapter when we are confronted with the holiness of God is that it is focused on the church, not the world. It is easy for us to point the finger at the world around us and, and see the sinfulness of society. But here the holiness of God is aggravating the hard-heartedness of his own people whom he has made covenant with, whom he has delivered from Egypt and established as a nation, a kingdom, to represent the kingdom of God before the nations of the world. They are a wayward people at this time. It is a time in which the light of God's kingdom shines very dimly among the nations of the world. And is there not some familiarity of that truth today? The light of God's kingdom signified by his church shines at least in North America very dimly. And it's, it's something to see that as God has dealt with his own disobedient people, his own wayward people who no longer tremble at his holiness, That he wants the message that Isaiah is taking and speaking to them to have the effect of making them even more hard-hearted. Isn't that a trembling thought? That you can sit here and listen to the word of God and your heart becomes harder against God. That's God's holiness at work. And what we see as we come to verses 11 to 13 is that it is God's holiness that is provoking the desolation of Israel. That's the word that's used three times in those verses. It's God's holiness that is bringing Israel and the nation of Israel into desolation, making it a wasteland. And I don't know about you, but if I was Isaiah, I would be trembling at having to do such a commission. It, it almost seems futile. But it isn't. 
Isaiah's commission is fulfilling a purpose of God. In his sovereignty, God is going to further harden Israel in their sin because his will is not to have them return and be healed. That is a troubling thing for us. How is this part of the will of God to bring his salvation and light to the ends of the earth? Haven't we already heard, even in the Old Testament, that God's pleasure is in showing mercy? What about Ezekiel 33.11, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? And how many of you, when you hear those words, how many of you, and I've seen it in so many times when that verse is used, that it's applied to the world? But it isn't. Those are words that are applied to, as the end of Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Why should you die, O house of Israel? He is talking about his own people who have become dead. To his holiness. His own people. Who look at the worship of God. And say. Do we have to do this again? His own people. Who looked at this. And it's further on in Isaiah. He deals with it. Who look at the Sabbath as a burden. To their lives. And not a joy and a delight. You see. The sins that we commit as God's people are not new. Just recycled, reformatted for our generation. And this is where these words are directed. Because if the church can't grasp the holiness of God, how do we expect the world to see it? That's a measure of this point. And and when we think on these things, it isn't that God is at fault for withholding his grace. We think, well, well, how does God expect these people to have their hearts turned if he's not willing for them to return and be healed? Isn't God at fault? That's what some Christians say. To speak against the sovereignty of God, to speak against what we term as Calvinism. No, God is never at fault. Israel is. The Old Testament church. Israel's at fault. They are the ones who have scorned the Holy One. They are the ones, to put it in the words of Hebrews chapter 10, they are the ones who trampled the Son of God underfoot. They are the ones who took that temple that was to display the glory of the saving mercies of Jesus Christ always at work for his people until they are brought into glory. They are the ones who began to fill that temple with idols, who began to change the worship of God to be more meaningful to them, to be more like the world around them. They are the ones who denied the need of mercy. Because they're already good enough for God. (laughs) They trampled the Son of God underfoot. They counted 
the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, by which they were made holy, a common thing. It's not that important what we do as Christians. It's not important if we worship God on Sunday. That's a prevailing attitude, isn't it? It's not important. It's not important. Do you know what God has done to redeem you and to make you a holy one who does worship him? What it cost God. <laughs> you can almost hear God, and he does. He pleads with Israel, even up to this point, when he says to Isaiah, you're not going to have success in your mission. But don't stop preaching the gospel. It's going to harden their hearts anymore, but I want them to know this is the way to return to me. Even if your sins are like scarlet, he's already said, they can be white as snow. It isn't that God lacks power or willingness. It comes to the willingness of the heart of his people to love him and to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where we fail. They insult the spirit of grace. And when that is brought out in Hebrews 10, those three acts, trampling the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant a common thing, insulting the spirit of grace, it says immediately after, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My dear friends, this morning, are you feeling that weight of the holiness of God? It's a sense of what the glory of his majesty is all about. To use that word glory is to speak about the weightiness of God. Do you feel that weight of his holiness? Even as you enter into his presence to worship. And we see here with God's holiness in verses 11 and 12, that what he's at work doing is first of all purifying the faithless, not in the way that you might think of making them holy, but purifying the faithless, removing them from the land. Have you ever had to bear bad news to someone? I can think of a stu as a student, I remember the time, the first time, I had to tell uh, my mom especially that I failed the test. That was really, really challenging back in my youthful days. Can't imagine having to be a doctor who has to tell the news to a patient about the terminal state of their life or to tell a family that a loved one has died. That's the depth of what Isaiah has before him. He cries out here, Lord, how long? How long? Isaiah knows what he's being called to do. He's called to come and pronounce God's judgment upon Israel, not just the nations around Israel, on Israel itself. God's judgment on Israel is true. It's set. Notice what he doesn't ask here. He doesn't ask God to modify or rescind. 
because he understands the holiness of God must deal with sin. The holiness of God must deal with the sin of his own people. You come back tonight, you're going to hear that in Joshua 7 and Achan. One man spoiled a whole nation. The sins of God's people are a grave thing. But Isaiah here is is deeply concerned for Israel. What will become of her? Lord, how long? And and if you were to look up those three words in, in the Old Testament, you see how many times they appear in the Psalms as he's dealing with the pressures of God's weighty hand of justice being felt. Or in Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to say that. When God says, I am raising up Babylon to come and to destroy Israel. Isaiah has that prophecy. And and they know how fierce these nations will be upon the people of God. And the question isn't, God, don't let this happen. The question is, God, how long? How long? Isaiah's task here is to tell the impending judgment of God upon Israel that is due her idolatry. And this question is expressing his heart. He understands he must present God's judgment, but it must be something that's done in earnestness for people's souls. I often think how We're often told today as Christians when we present the gospel, we are to do it in a winsome way. I really, I think I know what they mean by that. But how do you make judgment sound winsome? It's a reality. God has judged sin. The reality of the gospel is that the judgment's already there. And the gospel comes as good news of what God has done to deliver us from judgment. Isaiah here shows the earnestness that we are to have for those who are under God's judgment. Because he's told by God in verses 11 and 12 what that purifying work of God's holiness is going to do upon the church. And it's going to remove the faithless. And it's going to be astounding how many faithless there are in Israel, in the church. Basically what he is saying in response to Isaiah's question, Lord, how long? Verses 11 and 12 is, until all is forsaken. Until it's all forsaken. Again, do you think that this stands in contradiction to God's promise when going through, we're going through Joshua in the evening? When God promised to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, that was a promise of God. The question is, why is God forsaking Israel? 
because he also promised to do that if Israel forsook him. This is the sobering aspect of God that we don't enjoy hearing. The problem that we've already seen here, why God is forsaking Israel, the problem again is not with God, it's with Israel. Israel has lost the sense of what every sin deserves. Ask yourself this question, dear Christians. What does every sin deserve? You commit sin today. You commit sin tomorrow. What does every sin deserve? And our catechism says it so succinctly. Every sin deserves the wrath of God both in this life and that which is to come. Every sin Do you know the problem with us as Christians is we do not look at sin as being dangerous to our souls anymore because the blood of Christ cleanses us, because the blood of Christ is upon us, because I've been delivered from that judgment of God. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Once saved, always saved. When we lose the sense of what every sin deserves, we lose the knowledge of the holiness of God. I ask you often this question, congregation, I ask it again. You came to worship this morning. You understand you're coming to be with God. His presence is going to fill our assembly and the glory of God will be upon us. How many of you in humility and contrition, pray to the Lord this morning for mercy upon your sinfulness as you were readying yourself to come and worship Him. It's an afterthought, isn't it? It's as if, okay, yes, we acknowledge and I confess, God, forgive us our sins in Jesus' name. Amen. But there are specific sins I can look last week and see the times that I missed my devotional time with the Lord. Father, forgive me for not having you set in my heart as I go into the day. I can look back uh, and and see the times when I said those inerrant words and, and I haven't yet gotten on my knees and said, God, forgive me. For, for those slanders or those wicked thoughts that I had. We, we lose the sense of the sinfulness of sin. And thus the knowledge of God's holiness begins to diminish in our thoughts. And the state of Israel at this time is so grave that God has said, Judgment. Desolation, the cities, the houses, and the lands will be laid waste. Utterly laid waste and utterly desolate, they're the same word. That is when you get down to verse 12, and and, and the Lord makes this thing, that he will remove men far away so that the places are forsaken, and there are many. That word forsaken, That word is the same word that Jesus expressed on the cross when he cried out, My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? Where is the light of your presence? Where is that communion that I had with you? Where is that blessing and that love of the Father that I enjoyed all my life? Where are you, God? (laughs) And what God is saying here is that in his holiness, his judgment is such that he will remove from his presence the unfaithful of the land. His holiness purifies. And Israel would experience what it is like for the countenance of God to no longer shine upon them. My friends, I say this. Because in Canada, the statistics of the number of churches that are closing is phenomenal. We might say, well, that's them over there. (laughs) They're not in our camp. My friends, this is the visible church. The visible church that is more or less pure in their doctrine, more or less pure, in their worship, more or less pure, in their witness and apprehension of the gospel, the visible church in Canada is in grave decline. That's a reality. Why? God's holiness purifies, removes the faithless. And we're seeing how little, how little the church is now. It doesn't take a prophet to make that statement. It is a reality. But I don't think we grasp what's happening. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And draw your minds to the cross. Try your mind to that time and experience of Christ when he was giving up his life to redeem us. And how he, he takes those words of Psalm 22 and he owns them in reality. I know there's just no way for this to be impressed upon our hearts by the way a man who isn't experiencing it can say. We like to come alongside people who are suffering things and say to them, I understand what you're going through. None of us, if you are in Christ, none of us can understand what he was going through when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? God, you're supposed to be my father. (laughs) You know, I don't think we grasp what Jesus was enduring. What he was enduring was the holiness of God at work in dealing with the sinfulness of sin that had been poured out upon his son and giving to his son what every sin deserves. (laughs) Christ there was showing the holiness of God in his sufferings for our sins. (laughs) 
It's, it's amazing what he's accomplished for us. It, it's amazing that we can sit here and say, yes, every one of my sins has been forgiven. The past sins, the present sins, those which I have yet to commit, God has forgiven them all in Christ. But that truth does not neglect our compromise of the holiness of God in our daily lives. And that's the struggle. God's holiness purifies. It removes the faithless. God's holiness also purifies the stump. In verse 13, you know, I think Isaiah is not just simply asking how long God is your judgment going to be along, upon Israel. I, I, I believe in his words as God responds and answers it. He's also saying, God, where is the remnant? Where are the faithful going to be? What's happening to the church? Are the faithful going to experience the wrath of God too? And why I say that is because verse 13 is the answer to those questions. Do the faithful experience God's wrath? The answer is no. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. God has not appointed his saints to wrath. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even as God's judgments are being poured out upon a nation. That has become apostate. To use that word. God understands that he has that remnant within the midst who are striving to be faithful. They will not experience his wrath, but they will experience the tribulation that comes when his wrath is poured out. That's a reality. The church does experience tribulation. John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. What is tribulation? Revelation, tribulation is when God God pours out his wrath upon the world. When he judges the nations. And in the midst of that. Stand his holy stump. And in the midst of that. Is the hand of God at work. When you read verse 13. God is also disciplining the faithful. In the midst of this. We we don't like to, to address. The ways in which God disciplines his people. But he does. If you were to turn to Hebrews 12. And you read those words from, from verse 5 onward. Hebrews 12 verse 5 where he talks about uh, the exhortation that speaks to us as sons. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Or be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Do you know why he spoke those words? Because he said in the verse before it, you're not resisting to bloodshed in your striving against sin. You're not resisting to bloodshed in your striving against sin. And God is saying to Isaiah, the faithful that are there need to resist. A tenth will be for consuming. That, that whole phrase there. The tenth will be in it uh, and will return and be for consuming uh, as a terebinth tree or as an oak tree whose stump remains when it is cut down. What's he saying there? What he's saying is that Israel's faithful ones also need purifying. 
And that purifying wrath of God against the faithless would be a purifying fire in the lives of his faithful ones. However cut down and destroyed Israel would be, the stump would remain. However frequently it would appear that Israel was going to perish, the holy seed, the stump would remain, but it would endure hard times. Why does God do that? Why does God bring hard times? Well, you know James 1. Most of us know verses 2 and 3. My friends, brethren, count it all joy when you come into many trials, various trials. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith is producing patience. You don't have to pay for pray, sorry, pray for patience. I, I hear people saying that, Lord, give me patience. And you, you hear some Christians who will say, mm, you know, you pray that way, you know how patience is given. No, God is saying, no, uh, when you experience a trial, you know what I'm doing. I'm trying to be, bring into your life the patience that you need. I, and, and he goes on in verse 4 then to say, let that patience have its perfect work. We forget that. Because what God is saying is, I'm going to bring trials into your life because whether you admit it or not, dear Christians, you don't strive against sin the way you should. That's our problem. We might have those times when we are working on a particular area in our life, but striving under bloodshed, cutting things out of your life. When is the last time you gave up something like the internet because you could not control it? You gave up something because it was leading you into sin. I can control it. I can deal with it. I can. And, and we, again, don't take that step back to realize the holiness of God and the need to strive to bloodshed. God allows his people to go through, First Peter chapter 1, fiery trials so that their faith, which is so precious to him, do you realize those words in First Peter 1, verse 6? Your faith is precious to God. As small as a mustard seed as it may be, it's precious to God because he's gifted it to you. But it needs to be tried. And it needs to be tried in a hard way so that it may come forth as gold. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing to the stump. His holiness works to purify the stump through hard trials. But again, we don't remain in that time in our own strength. God in his holiness has provided for us the holy seed. Yes, that holy seed that's mentioned in verse 13 refers to the church. We don't deny that. But it also refers preeminently to Jesus himself. 
That holy seed of God. The one promised from Genesis 3 to come and to destroy Satan. To destroy the work of the devil. That holy seed himself would go through and endure those very trials that we experience in lesser measure to be our deliverance in it all. That holy seed who would come and who would be that seed planted in the ground to die so that he might bring life to all who believe in him. Do you realize what Jesus went into? Do you realize the trials that he endured? Do you realize the fierceness of God's wrath that he experienced in order to be the one who upholds and preserves the stump of his people in these times? You get to Isaiah 53 and what do we hear about Jesus? Listen listen to all the words that are there describing his suffering. He was despised, rejected, smitten, wounded, bruised, beaten, chastised, oppressed, slaughtered, cut off, stricken, put to grief, numbered with transgressors. This is what the holiness of God determined was going to be the only way in which you are going to be redeemed from all of your sins. Is if his very son comes and endures all of this experiences all the fullness of the wrath of the holy God of heaven. He is that holy one that has been raised up by God and has become that terebinth tree, that oak tree in whom we rest. The one in whom we become more than conquerors. God is using those trials To purify his Holy One in the Holy One, in Christ. Christ is the pattern in which we fall. My friends, do not think it strange, fiery trials that you experience. Think it strange if you don't experience trials. Think that strange, but don't think it strange. You're being met in your life with hardship and affliction and trial. Because God's holiness is at work to purify you. Because the Father is the one who has chosen you to be holy and without blame in his Son. Jesus said, the servant is not greater than the master. The difference is we have a master who's upholding us in the midst of our trials. We can say with truth, Christ will never leave me or forsake me. That is our resting place. So understand that God's holiness is there to purify us, to purify his church, to make it stand as his kingdom in the world.